Good afternoon. If you are able to, please uh, stand with me as we read from God's Word, Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. And it reads, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes and I will not forget your word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word that has been preserved and kept for us and has been given to us today to meditate upon and to, and to uh, devour and to uh, consume so that it brings us knowledge of who you are, revelation of your great and loving character towards us, and the contentment and joy that it brings us in knowing that we are safe and secure in your arms through the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we sit in your presence and uh, go through your word, we pray you will enable us to focus our hearts and minds on what you have to speak to us today. In the mighty and mass name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen. You may be seated. So this is the second in a series on Psalm 119. And as your brother Nishant was sharing last week, we know this is what's called an acrostic psalm. It's a psalm that basically com- consists of 22 stanzas of eight verses each. And each of those stanzas, the beginning of the verses are the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And we have to be very uh, careful to understand that there are not 22 messages in the psalm. The psalmist wants to focus on a few themes about the word of God, sometimes from different perspectives, sometimes addressing different concerns of life. But he wants us to understand the core of what he's trying to bring out in these uh, verses. He's meditating upon the beauty and the, and the life-giving vitality of the word of God. And his meditation is what spills over in prayer and praise and exhortations. Not in a sequence, but dispersed throughout all the verses of the psalm. It's a joyful psalm. So we should be careful not to contain it within some literary structure just because we have figured it out. You know, a commentator uh, says this about Psalm 119, he says, this giant among the Psalms, literally, shows the full flowering of the delight in the law of the Lord, which is described in Psalm 1, and gives its personal witness to the many-sided qualities of Scripture praised in Psalm 19 and verse 7. Psalm 19 and verse 7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, it makes wise the simple. So to sum it up, what he's saying is that Psalm 119 is the ultimate expression of all the concerns of the psalmist throughout the psalms, beginning in Psalm chapter 1, exemplified in Psalm chapter 19, and flowering out 
in its fullest expanse in Psalm 119. So last week our brother shared on the first eight verses and he shared to us regarding you know, two, two particular themes, which is how do you find happiness? And he said you find happiness by being blameless in the sight of the Lord. And ultimately we know that means you find happiness by being found in Jesus Christ. Today our passage is set up with a question. And the question is how can a young man keep his way pure? What is purity? And, and in the Bible, purity is, you could say, moral cleanliness. But more than that, it is to be declared justified, to be found justified in the eyes of the Lord, to be called holy. So the psalmist is asking, how can a young man be justified in the sight of the Lord? And it's a similar teaching device as we find in the Proverbs. The young man here is not intended to just stand for young people. You know, the Proverbs talks about my son. And similarly, the psalmist here is talking about himself. He's talking about himself as a young man because he's putting himself in the place of a disciple of the Lord. He wants to know how can a disciple, one who claims to follow the Lord, keep his way pure? And he says the answer to that is to guard his way according to the word of God. The first verse of this uh, Psalm 119 verse 1 it says blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the way of the Lord so this is a reiteration of that same words it is a commitment to actively arrange and monitor and perform the activities of his day to day life according to the will of God revealed in his perfect word in short this is what we would call as godliness how can a disciple keep his way pure by living a godly life, by, by, by living in godliness? And how do, how do you attain godliness? The psalmist says, by going to the perfect revealed word of God. In short, godliness in daily life is only attainable through the word that comes from God. And in this small passage of about eight verses, you will find at least four aspects of godly living, which is devotion or love to God, or love for God. Secondly, a teachable spirit. Third, a commitment to obedience, to obey the revealed word of God. And lastly, and not definitely not least, contentment and delight in the word of God. So love for God, a teachable spirit, Commitment to obedience and contentment and delight that flows from the word of God. So love for God, what does the psalmist mean by that? Verse 10, he says, with my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. He doesn't say with my whole heart I seek the word of God. He's not a Bible worshiper, as some people would derisively call a lot of Christians. They say, you do not worship God, you worship the Bible. What they're trying to say is that disregard what the Bible has to say, just follow what in your mind God says to you. But really what the Psalms is saying is he's seeking God with his whole heart. We are noting the fact that he has this immense and sincere love for God. 
and his whole heart is devoted to the Lord. And because of his love for God, and because he wants to strive to seek the face of God, and the will of God for his life, he says, I want to know your word. You know, later on in the psalm, we read in uh, verse 132, it says, turn, and, turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. It is because the psalmist loves God that he loves the perfect writings of God that reveal the will of God to him. It is because he loves God that he writes Psalm 119, which is a love letter to the word of God, but in reality, it is a love letter to God himself. And here the psalmist reveals that a proper love for God will, will lead to overwhelming love for the revelation of God, which we have in the Bible, the word of God. Because we want to know more of this God whom we love and more of what he says to us and his desires for us and his promises to us. That's why we love the word of God. We love the word of God because we love God. And how is this love for God expressed in godliness? How is it expressed in guarding your life with the word of God? And here in this passage, you can see, first off, there's a totality in how the psalmist seeks after God according to his word. There's a, there's a, there's a fullness in the efforts and the impact that the word of God has on him. He says, with my whole heart, in verse 10. Then he says in verse 13, with my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. I will proclaim the tenets of God. I'm not ashamed of the one I love, therefore I'm not ashamed of publicly testifying and proclaiming my devotion to him and to his word. Verse 15, he says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. With my eyes fixed on your ways, my gaze is not on the delight of the world, but on the beauty of him whom I love. So there's a totality in his experience of seeking after God through his word. And secondly, that love expresses itself, itself in praise and adoration for the Lord. See how Psalm uh, verse 12 begins. It says, blessed are you, O Lord. Therefore, teach me your statutes. His desire to be taught the word of God comes from his proper regard and adoration for God himself, which we see here expressed in the outpouring of praise. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught his disciples and to us. He says, how does he start? He says, hallowed be your name. Similarly, the psalmist is saying, blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Praise comes before or is a precursor before petition in the life of a Christian, in the life of the godly man and woman. So similarly, in, in, in 119 verse 7, he says, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. This learning of godliness cannot come without the heart being full of praise and adoration for God and being in a posture of devotion to him. When our heart is full of praise to God, we will have the desire to learn his statute and his rules in order to know more of him and to live a life that is pleasing to him. This posture of praise, this attitude of praise is what separates profitable, life-transforming study of the word of God from mere scholarly or intellectual learning. Anyone can study the Bible, but only those who praise God can be transformed by it. 
That's what the psalmist wants us to know. The first part of a godly life is devotion to God expressed in our desire to learn from his word. Secondly, he says this, the second characteristic of the one who pursues godliness, which is also a result of a love for God, is to have a teachable spirit, a humble spirit that is willing to continually learn and apply the word of God in one's life. You know, this famous verse, verse 11 and 12, it says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. So from the outpouring of praise to God comes the desire to learn continually from him, not just to get a degree, right, where you stop on a particular date, but lifelong learning in the word of God and thereby to grow in God as a result of that learning. You see that same idea later on in Psalm 119, verse 33 to 36. It says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. The psalmist has a teachable spirit. He has a desire to be taught. Not just a desire to learn. Many people have a desire to learn. Very few have a desire to be taught, to sit at the feet of the master and be told where they are going wrong, how they are to improve. But this psalmist is not one of them. He wants to be taught. He stores up the word of God in his heart. You know, we often reduce this to just mere memorization, right? As, uh, you know, those who come from uh, an Indian background, or like, call it learning, it learning by heart, right? It's, it's memorization. I used to do Bible drills when I was in Sunday school. You know, there were the, the real dedicated boys and girls who would, re, you know, who would uh, memorize whole books, you know, whole uh, passages. You know, they would go like 600, 700 verses, then there would be hacks like me. I would do Psalm 136 because it always ends the same. So you just have to remember. You would do numbers, the, the census, because it's all the same words. You just have to remember the name and, and the tribe. See, memorization of God's word is very important, but storing up the word of God in the heart is more than memorization. You see, the word there to store really is the word for treasure. It says, I have treasured your word in my heart. I have hid something of immense value in my heart so that in the process of hiding, of treasuring this word in my heart, I may not sin against you. You see, the value of the word comes from the fact that it is the revelation of God. But its value also comes from us recognizing that this is a treasure. It has immense value to, 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 it has immense power and the ability to change us. You know, if you go through a survey of Psalm 119, the psalmist expresses the strength of the word of God, the power of the word of God in different terms. In 161, he says, Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. It's awesome. 
Then in 172, he says, my tongue will sing off your word for all your commandments are right. It is, the, the word of God is righteous. In, one four, in 43, he says, take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth for my hope is in your rules. The word of God is dependable. In 18, he says, open my eyes that I may behold, behold wondrous things out of your law. It is wonderful. It is inexhaustible. And then, you know, this is a beautiful verse in verse 96. He said, I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. It has a breadth of perfection that cannot be matched by anything else in this world. And 152, he says, long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. You know, Jesus expands on this in Matthew chapter 24 and 35 when he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What is unchangeable and everlasting in this universe is not the created order of the stars and the planets, but rather God and his revealed word. So the word of God is unchangeable and everlasting. It is this awesomeness of the word that motivates the psalmist to hide it, to treasure it, and store it in his heart. And why is it in the heart? When you're memorizing, where are you storing it? In your brain. Why are you storing it in your heart? Because the heart is the center of our, of our being. It, is, it has an impact on the whole body. That's why he talks about you know, our speech, the, the fruit of our lips in verse 13, our minds, our thoughts, our eyes in verse 15, and throughout the psalm, our emotions, our feelings, the heart is the origin of all of that. That's why he stores it in his heart. When the word of God is supreme in our heart, in our whole being, then it has the power to change us, to purify, to, to prevent us from wandering, to keep us from sin. So the answer to the question, how can one keep his way pure, is that the word of God has a power to enable us to do so. And so we have to store up and learn the word of God progressively, exhaustively. If the commandment is exceedingly broad, the psalmist wants to be taught all of God's statutes and precepts. You know, Paul said something similar in Acts chapter 20 and verse 27. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. We are, we are not to be satisfied with mere morsels. We are not to be content with, with what we could say is chicken soup for the soul. With therapy and comfort. The Bible does that much more, much greater than anything else. But it is more than that. Its power is contained in the breadth of knowledge that it has that cannot be exhausted. So within the limitations that we have, we have to seek to learn the whole counsel of God, this immense breadth of knowledge that's contained within. And we have to, we have, to have that yearning, that mandate, that whichever church or Bible study that we engage in or, or our devotional reading habits, our family Bible studies, we have to practically orient ourselves to, to be engaged in learning and studying and hearing the whole counsel of God in its, in its breadth, in, in its perfection. So the psalmist has a teachable spirit. He wants to learn and he wants to be changed. 
by the power of the word of God. And out of you know, that love for God and for his word and from, his te- and from that teachable spirit comes a commitment to obedience that not only will he hear and be taught, but he will also obey and change because of the precepts of God. You know, in verse 4, we read last week, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. When the psalmist seeks God, he is motivated by his desire to obey him fully. That's why he does not want to wander or stray from his commandments in verse 10. He's interested in the practice of godliness in order to not stray and sin, but also to fix his eyes on God's ways, as we saw in verse uh, 15. And then we see the practice of the, of the psalmist is a constant meditation upon his precepts, a constant evaluation of his life to figure out whether he's in obedience to the revealed word of God. The psalmist, as we read on in, in, in 119, is keenly aware that obedience is a requirement. It's an obligation. It's not a choice when you have received the revelation of God. And the revelation of God will only increase, will only increase in impact and in power in one's heart when they are obeyed. If, you just, if we just receive it, but we do not change, we are not committed to obeying what it has to say to us, then it is not going to have the impact it's supposed to have. And Paul says something similar in, you know, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 to 10. He says, and so from the day we heard, talking to the Colossian church, he says, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and then what? Increasing in the knowledge of God. So he wants us to be filled with the knowledge of God in order that we may increase in the knowledge of God. If this is familiar to you, it's because I preached this quite some time ago. So I'm cribbing from myself, which is technically not plagiarism. So Paul's desire was for his listeners to be filled with the knowledge of God's will in order to obey him, which is to walk worthily and bear fruit, so that they would continue to increase in the knowledge of God's will. Like I said that day, there's an aspect in which our knowledge of God increases when we obey the will of God. That is, there's a moral barrier to increasing in the knowledge of God, not necessarily an intellectual one. Our morality, our ethics, our life can keep us from increasing in the knowledge of God, not just our brains. You know, F.F. Bruce said this, for obedience to the knowledge of God, which has already been received, is a necessary and certain condition for the reception of further knowledge. So the psalmist's commitment to obedience is stemming out of his desire to be taught more and more. He doesn't want the learning to stop. He doesn't want the teaching to stop because he will not obey what has been given to him already. So there is the love for God. There is the teachable spirit. There is the commitment to obedience. But lastly, definitely like I said, not least, is a continuing theme of delight and joy that we see flowing throughout the words of Psalm 119. You get the sense that the psalmist is joyful. He's contented with what he has in God and in the word of God. And his delight stems not from riches, 
but his joy comes from God and knowing God and his word. Verse 14, he says, In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. Further on in 162, he says, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil, great treasure. Verse 16, we already read, I delight in your statutes. He's happy. He's content. He's joyful. He expresses it. What is contentment? If you Google it, what is contentment? I Googled it for you. A state of happiness and satisfaction. It's very simple. What is contentment? A state of happiness and satisfaction. So in Psalm 119, we see the picture of the true contentment of a person who loves God and his word. And because of loving God and, and astounded at the fact that God has revealed himself to us in such an exhaustive manner, they have found, or he has found, the psalmist has found happiness and satisfaction. Our brother last week talked about the blessedness of those who walk in the law of the Lord. And he said the word blessedness really is the word happiness. Happy are those who walk in the Lord. You know, contentment, joy, and happiness are the preserve and the heritage of the people of God who are devoted to him and who find their riches in the word of God, who find their satisfaction in God alone. So let me ask you, are you content today in the Lord? Are you happy and satisfied? Do you have a desire to be happy, to be content? If you have that desire, then you will do everything to gain that contentment. You will learn to love God more and more. You will learn to immerse yourself in his word, to obey him joyfully. But the desire has to be there. We live in an age of perpetual discontent where the driving force of life is dissatisfaction and unhappiness with one state in life. This is a discontented age. And even Christians are not immune to this. Even in our own lives, many a times, discontent and unhappiness courses through the days of our life. Why are we discontent? Why are we dissatisfied? What are we dissatisfied with today? Somehow, we have started to believe that it is more authentic to be unhappy and to show that we are unhappy than it is to seek after joy. That's a problem of this age. You know, the Bible places a very high value on joy and happiness, expressive happiness, expressive joy. That's the word rejoicing means. The word rejoice means to express your joy exuberantly, to shout out. You know, Paul was sitting in his prison cell and he says, rejoice, hooray. For many of us, we are content, paradoxically, with knowing that we are not chasing after riches, but we are still unhappy. You know, we, we think that money cannot bring happiness, right? We have all 
figured out or learned by now that money cannot bring happiness or have been taught that money cannot bring happiness. I'm telling you it's wrong. You're wrong. Money will bring happiness. You know who's the richest man in the world? Jeff Bezos, $143 billion. Do you know that he's not content? Do you know that he's not satisfied? You know, his wife drives him around in a 96 Honda Accord. You know, Warren Buffett is the third richest man, unfortunately, now. He used to be first. He eats his breakfast every day from McDonald's. Half of us here wouldn't eat breakfast from McDonald's. We'd be concerned about the GMO or the MMO or whatever it is, you know, the salt content and all of that. Do you know that those people are not content with all their money? I'm, I'm, I'm here to tell you they are. They are not seeking after fancy cars. They are not seeking after big houses. They have money. Doesn't mean they're discontent. And the word of God doesn't say that money won't bring you happiness. The word of God says in verse 14, what does he say in verse 14? In the way of your testimony, I delight as much as in all riches. He's saying riches will bring you delight, but the word of God will bring you more delight. That's why Paul says in his letter to Timothy, you know, about avoiding strife and quarrels and unnecessary controversy. He says at the end of it all, in verse 6 of chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, he says, godliness with contentment, with satisfaction, with happiness is great gain. The testimony of scripture is that those who seek after God, having found him and being filled with the riches of his word, progress in contentment and happiness. Not temporary, not material, not dependent on circumstances, but it is the joy of the Lord, the peace that passeth all understanding. As we were even remembering today morning, the salvation that we have is the joy inexpressible that has been given to us by God. Now, when we live in a state of perpetual discontent, we are shining a negative light on the beauty and the value of the God whom we follow and his word that we claim to have a zeal for. There's enough pressure in this world that we do not need to add to it by being discontent, by having no desire for joy. The truth of the word of God needs to be supplemented with the contentment that is the fruit of the word of God. You know, David in Psalm 51, he says, in a time of struggle, he says, Lord, restore to me what? The joy of your salvation. The joy. It's a battle. But you have to fight for it. Jesus says in Luke chapter 10 and verse 20, nevertheless do not rejoice in the fact that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice. Be joyful that your names are written in heaven. And like we said, Paul in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. In 2 Corinthians, he says, I'm sorrowful, yet I'm rejoicing. He's saying, you know, you know what we think when you hear that verse? That he's crying on the outside, but he's happy inside. No, he's saying, I'm crying on the inside. I'm happy on the outside. That's what rejoicing means. So I was watching a kid's uh, Bible study video yesterday, and they asked, does rejoicing mean rejoicing and then rejoicing again? No, it doesn't. Rejoicing means it is an exuberant joy. 
expressive. It brings out a smile on your face. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 to 9, says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do, you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, the, dis- the discontent, the dis- unhappiness that we live with today cannot be explained just by psychological reasons or by the changing of the seasons or by chemical imbalances. This is more. There's something rotten at the core of our souls. We believe that it is okay to continually be unhappy even when we have every reason to rejoice. It is the malaise of our age. You know, in the past, people would say, well, I love you, but I don't know how to express it, right? We named and shamed all those people. No one says that anymore. People will come to you and say, oh, my love language is gifts, or it's walking backwards, whatever it is. (laughs) You know, we keep the keg and Ruth and Chris's in business because we have learned how to express our love. Will our children say that our parents did not know how to express their joy and their happiness. You know, when I was younger, I would get angry at people who would leave or who would have no time for proper biblical, biblically sound teaching and instead go after, you know, pastors like Joel Osteen or whoever else. And over time, I I still don't agree, I still not accept it, but I've come to understand what drives those people. You see, people have problems, real problems. They do not know how they're going to make ends meet at the end of the month. They do not know if they'll have a house next month. They do not know if they'll have a job. You know, the leaders of the world play, you know, at their whim with the lives of people put tariffs and he put sanctions on countries, a company fires 3,000 people next day. People have problems. They do not want to be told that you can make money all the t- or necessarily. They don't want to be told that, oh, all your problems will be solved like that. But they do want to know that they can find joy and happiness somewhere. And often they come into a church where they look at the people who should have every reason to be happy. We say we have every reason to be happy. We have been blessed with everything that we need, and yet they do not find it. So I understand why a message which says, do not worry about strife. Always be joyful, even if it is not you know, supplemented by the whole council of Even if it is taken out of context, I understand why it appeals to people. And then we say, the truth is more important than just finding happiness and joy. Our intentions are noble, but the partition that we make between the truth and happiness, between the truth and joy, is not in the word of God. That is of our own making. You do not have to choose between truth and happiness. 
you know, Jeremiah in uh, chapter 15, I believe it is, he says, I got the word of God, I ate it, I consumed it, and your words became a joy and delight to my heart. You do not have to choose. We have to fight for the joy and the contentment that comes from knowing God by being known by God and having the revelation, the word of God in our hands. That's what the psalmist says. He's devoted to God. He loves God. He wants to be taught. He has a teachable spirit. He wants to obey him joyfully so that he can learn more and more. But most of all, he says, I have found my delight, my satisfaction in God and in his word. Psalms chapter 34, verse 10, it says, the young lions do lack for food, but those who seek after the Lord lack no good thing. They are to be satisfied and they are to be content and they are to be expressive in how we declare that. You know, in, with my lips I declare all the rules of my mouth because in the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. As we immerse ourselves in the word of God, as it seasons every aspect of our being, may we never forget that the contentment it brings is greater than all the riches of the world. May we desire that joy, that peace, that satisfaction. Maybe fight for it daily for, for the satisfaction that can only be found in God and in his word. May his name be glorified. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you a lot for your word that is a balm to our aching hearts and, 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 a, and a healer of all our wounds. So Lord, we remember today the great privilege of being called your people through the work of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to which we had no claim apart from your grace. And now being found in your presence, we are f to be filled with joy. And yet many a times, oh Lord, we have forgotten that joy is the fruit of being known by you and of having your word revealed to us. Oh Lord, as we handle your word, we have access to it in so many ways. We can read, we can listen. May we never forget that we are to love you first, love you more and more, and, th and through that to have a desire to learn more and more about you from your word, to obey you more fully day by day, to progress in our obedience and in our commitment and our sanctification, and, and above all a lot, to be known as a joyful people because we have found something, a treasure that is greater than all the riches of the world combined. May our hearts and our spirits, O oh Lord, be changed by your word, by, being, by understanding that we have no right to this, but it's your grace. And therefore, let us live out our days in accordance with the privilege that you have given to us. And as we go out into the world, may we declare with our lips the precepts that you have given to us so that they may bring joy to others as they have brought joy to us. In your mighty and matchless name we pray, amen.